Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 84, and we're going to talk about the pros and mostly the cons of buying a used vehicle. We're also going to talk about a great new invention that I found, plastic razor blades, a tale from the road involving snow and a phone booth, and a place to visit that has, well, I can't even tell you, it's so weird. No, really, it's it's weird, and I was there just by accident. Anyway, we'll get to that part. First, first... I have to tell you about my experience buying an ambulance because there is a lesson to be learned here for all. I mean, and I'm, I'm actually, this is not specific to an ambulance. This is specific to if you find a van that you want and you buy it, what can happen? So here's how this happens. You get an idea that you want to buy a van. Okay, that's great. And then over time, you do research, you look at all the Instagram photos, and you learn more about different models, and you want this and that, and you figure out what you want. And then eventually, you start to get in your mind the perfect vehicle or something close to it. And then you search for that. And if it's been this year, you search and search and search and search. You find it. It's three times the price you want to pay. And then you search and search and search. And then, then you find it. You find that one vehicle that checks off most, if not all, your boxes and actually meets your budget, or almost. And this is this was my experience. Ever since I got the idea that I wanted my next build to be an ambulance, which I still recommend against, I hunted and searched and narrowed it down. At first, I thought I was going to do a Type 3, which is a van front, and then I thought, no, I'm going to do a Type 1, which is a truck front because they're easier to work on. And then I ended up with a Type 2, which is an ambulance that's just made out of a van. It has the normal van back. It doesn't have a box on the back, which is the least popular kind of ambulance for people to build out as campers because you lose all of your exterior storage and a lot of the interior space. But for me, it was the only one that really made sense because it was the only one I could park where I live, given that I have such small spaces. And I live in Chicago, basically downtown. I'm in the city. So that was a restriction for me. If you live in rural Wyoming, I would recommend you take a look at the Type 3s and the Type 1s because they are probably better camper vehicles if you're going to avoid cities. Anyway, after finding the one I wanted and vetting it, I did a Carfax on it. Now, there are a number of services that will do this. You basically type in the VIN and it will give you the history of the vehicle as it was reported. Now, not everything is reported. For example, if somebody changes their own oil, well, Carfax isn't going to know about that. But in the case of this vehicle, I got really great records because they always took it to a dealership, although it was a Ford dealership and it's actually a Mercedes Sprinter whatever. I had records of all the oil changes and the oil was changed in this vehicle on the heavy duty schedule. That is every 10,000 miles for a sprinter, which is great because it's an ambulance that's used in heavy duty situations. Lots of idling. Now I did notice that in 2014, this 2011 ambulance had, it said vehicle hit an animal. So this is way back in 2014. And it showed me that it had hit on the right front side, but that the airbags didn't deploy. So 
okay, it was in an accident, but that's a pretty minor accident. It was just an animal, and deer can do a lot of damage, but if the airbags didn't deploy, and if this thing was used as an ambulance for at least another six years after that, I thought, okay, well, that's fine. And then there was just normal maintenance, and a couple of parts were replaced, but really, the Carfax on this was clean and good, and it showed maintenance records that made me confident that this was a good vehicle. A quick note about Carfax. It costs about 40 bucks to do one Carfax. You can buy them cheaper in bulk. Like if you know you're going to run 10 Carfaxes, it's a lot cheaper to buy them as 10. And again, there are other services that are cheaper, but I used Carfax because I have used it before and it's fairly trustworthy and they do make it pretty easy. So um, that's a mild endorsement for Carfax there. Also with Carfax, you'll get information on the pricing. And I found out that the pricing on this ambulance pretty much matched the pricing for a Sprinter with similar mileage. Basically, I was going to pay what this thing was worth from a at a retail value, which is kind of how it is these days with the tight van market. And I got all the ambulance stuff for free. Now, of course, there's two sides to that coin. Yeah, I got all the ambulance stuff, but I also got all the extra wear and tear that comes with being an ambulance. So there's that. I learned a few things that I did not know during this process, and I think you should know them. First off, and this is specific to ambulances, they come with stuff that you don't want, and in some cases is illegal for you to own. Like in the U.S. in many locations, it's illegal to have a siren, it's illegal to have flashing blue lights, and mine came with those. Mine also came with a stretcher, a gurney, a Stryker R3 Pro Max or something like that, and an AED, which is a defibrillator, you know, clear! one of those things. I don't really have a use for those things. And at first I was like, well, I'm going to find a place to donate these. And and then somebody said, well, you know, you can actually sell them. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I get a hundred bucks for them. But, but no, no, these are worth real money. I managed to sell the stretcher for a thousand dollars. And I sold the AED for, I think, 150 and the lights are going to be worth money, too. And all this stuff's going to be worth money. So even though I paid a little bit more for the ambulance than I wanted to, I'm going to get a bunch of money back from the stuff I take out and sell. I mean, I've got the oxygen brackets, which are actually worth more than you would think. I've got the whole suction system. All that stuff, there's a market for. So that was good. And then, now this vehicle was in Texas, so I had to make a deposit which was non-refundable, which is normal for ambulances. I'm not a big fan of that, but that's how it is. I flew to Texas after making my $500 deposit, and I had the right then to inspect the vehicle and say yes or no, and then maybe I would have got my deposit back, maybe not. So Carfax in hand, I go and inspect the vehicle, and I had watched YouTube videos on how specifically to inspect sprinters. I checked the cap dance, which is this diesel engine thing where you remove the oil cap, and if it dances around, you want to stay away from that engine. I crawled under the thing, and... Honestly, this is the cleanest under vehicle I have ever seen. It looks like everything's brand new under the vehicle. Everything was great there. I checked for uneven tire wear. I checked that all the lights worked, which wasn't a major thing. And I took it on a test drive and everything was great. The only problem I noticed was that the overflow tank, the expansion tank for the coolant system was way over full. And I figured, well, they just had their lot boy was told to fill the fluids and he just did that wrong. And it's not the biggest deal in the world. I actually bought a, an antifreeze tester and used that to remove 50 ounces of excess fluid. That's right. It was 50 ounces too full. <laughs> and, and it kind of spilled all over the front of the engine. 
leaving kind of this oily mess and it there's, there's a plastic air dam down there and you know all right pretty minor stuff not something that's going to prevent me from buying a vehicle so i went through with the purchase everything looked great it drove wonderfully it was a dream and I figured, well, I better get this excess fluid out of there. I removed the fluid, and then I noticed it was still dripping a bit. And I thought, hmm, if I have removed all that excess fluid, where's this drip coming from? And I didn't think that much of it. I drove all the way back to Chicago, and it just, it would drip a little bit right underneath that reservoir. And I thought, well, there must be a coolant leak there. So I had to bring it to the Mercedes dealer for some major recall work anyway, which for some reason the ambulance company never did. This, this was those exploding airbags, the ones that would like shoot shrapnel into your chest. You kind of want to get that replaced. And there was also a bunch of DEF diesel recall stuff that had to be done, but I've talked about that enough. And I mentioned to them that's like, hey, it seems to have a little bit of a coolant leak. Now, you know, I did not think this was a big deal. It's just, a, it's got to be a hose or something. Well, the mechanic couldn't find the leak they did a pressure test on the coolant system and it held it lost no pressure so there was no coolant leak but he did say that he saw a lot of transmission fluid now i didn't see any transmission fluid when i picked this thing up uh, i just didn't the only leak i could find the only fluid i could find was from this antifreeze reservoir so it took the Mercedes dealer four days to find the leak. And in order to find the leak, they had to remove the front end of the vehicle. The bumper, the bumper cover, all the grill, everything had to come off the vehicle. And because this is an ambulance, there are sirens in there and lights wired in there. So it was actually a pretty big deal. I had to give them permission to cut out all that stuff, which was fine because I had to remove it anyway. And what they found was a leaking transmission cooler hose. So, okay, fine, not a big deal. Uh, or is it? Well, it turns out that this was not a Mercedes transmission cooler hose. Someone had replaced this with aftermarket parts. And I now realize that when the deer hit the vehicle, it did some damage to these hoses and somebody repaired them. But they didn't repair them correctly. Where the transmission cooler hose goes into the transmission cooler, and if you're not familiar with this part, it's like a little radiator that cools the transmission fluid. That's all it is. Where the hose connected to the transmission cooler was tweaked. That, that connection that sticks out was bent, and that's where it was leaking from, and that meant I needed to replace the transmission cooler. All right, well, that's a little bit more money, but again, it's a smaller radiator. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, but wait, in a Mercedes, the transmission cooler is built into the radiator. They're one and the same part, which means that if you want to replace the transmission cooler, you have to replace the entire radiator. Not only that, you are then replacing all the radiator fluid and all the transmission fluid, which turns it into a major radiator service and a major transmission service. Bottom line, that deer hitting that vehicle in 2014 cost me $3,000. Now, what could I have done to have avoided this? Honestly, I don't know. The Mercedes dealer took days to be able to find the leak. Had I had a mechanic inspect the vehicle, 
they probably wouldn't have found it. It was not leaking all that radiator fluid when I expected the vehicle. That happened on the trip up, and given that it's an ambulance, it probably has never made a thousand-mile-long trip before, and that may have put more pressure on the transmission. I don't know. Maybe they jiggled something loose when they were doing the warranty work. I can't tell. But there's my lesson from all this, is that you can do all the due diligence in the world, and maybe better due diligence than I did. And you can still end up with a pretty hefty repair bill right after you buy the vehicle. Could I have fixed this with some JB Weld and duct tape? I don't know. Maybe. But I don't have a workshop. I don't have a place where I can take off the front end and work at stuff like this. And I honestly want this to be a long-term vehicle in my life. I don't want to do repairs like that. The lesson to take from all of this is when you have a budget for buying a used vehicle, also have a buffer because you may need that buffer to make that vehicle into the vehicle that you think you're buying in the first place. Meanwhile, I am hoping for that check from Mercedes for the class action lawsuit, which should cover the $3,000 in unexpected repairs I had to do. And on the plus side, now I have a brand new radiator and a brand new transmission cooler and a brand new set of hoses and brand new transmission fluid and brand new antifreeze. Yay. Tech Talk. This is a, sort of a little bit like a product review, but I'm putting it here anyway, because it involves doing techie things, sort of. I recently discovered this product called, well, I don't know what they're called, other than they're plastic razor blades. So you know those normal square razor blades you use to scrape stickers off windows or whatever? Well, they make plastic versions of those, and I've found them to be very useful for doing gentle things where you still want to scrape. Now, these things are shaped exactly like those metal razor blades that we're all familiar with, and they fit in the same holders. In fact, if you buy them, and yes, I'll have a link in the show notes, they come with two holders, and they're just plastic versions of the metal holders that you're used to. Now, the nice thing about these is that they're sharp enough to do things like, say, open a box or scrape things, but they're gentle enough to be less damaging to paint, and it would be very difficult to cut yourself with one of these. I think if you tried hard, you would be able to, but I find them to be kind of the perfect balance between not too sharp and yet sharp enough to get the job done. And that's sometimes what you need. You know, a, a metal razor blade is going to cut whatever it comes into contact with. This thing would be great if, say, you had some tar stuck on your vinyl seat and it was really hard and you couldn't get it off. This would be a fairly safe thing to use. Or if you had some adhesive on your paint or maybe some bugs, things like that this would work great. Even if you had ice on your mirrors, this might be good for that too. Now, these things are plastic and they are single use. And somebody called me out on the carpet and said, hey, you are not doing enough to promote products that are reusable and save the environment. And I own that. It's true. I talk about single use electronics and single use plastics fairly often. And if you are the kind of person who is concerned about those things, you should definitely know that. And yeah, these things, you, you use them once, you throw them away, and they're a piece of plastic that's going to end out in the environment and probably stay there forever. But they're little, and I think they can save some of your stuff in some cases. So it's better to throw a plastic razor blade out in the dump than, say, a countertop. 
But you have to make your own decision on that. I just want to be upfront about it. So the they're cheap. They're about the same price as regular razor blades. And I have a big box of them now that I'm going to just keep in my van. And I will use them whenever I feel like that's the right thing to have. So... I find them to be more useful than those plastic spatulas you can get at Home Depot. And I really like that they fit in all the existing holders because then you have exactly the right grip. So I pass this along simply because I didn't know they existed before and it's yet another tool in your quiver that can solve whatever tech problems you might have, maybe in a bit of a safer way. Now. One caveat here is that these things are sharp enough to do damage as well. They're not completely safe to use. You still need to be prudent. It is, for example, possible to scrape your paint off with one of these if you get the edge dug in the paint, for example. But it's going to be much safer than a steel razor blade, so take it for what it's worth. Tales from the Road so way back long ago, when I was a kid growing up in Salem, Massachusetts, I was probably 17 when this happened. Uh, I had a car. It was, you know, my mother's old car, basically. It was a 1977 Ford LTD-2. And since 1977 was the year that Star Wars came out, I named it LTD-2. You can kind of see the joke there, yeah. Anyway, LTD-2 was my first car, and it was a ridiculous car. It was one of these boats that had that massive front end. I mean, you could have put a queen-size bed on the hood of this thing. It would not have made a good camper. I did actually sleep in it a few times, and it was horrible. But it was a car. It gave me mobility, and back then, everybody was eager to get their driver's licenses as soon as possible because having a car meant you had freedom. And we didn't have the internet. So I would just drive around sometimes. Uh, and one of the places I'd like to go was places where I could see some wildlife. Now, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. And there's a place in Salem, Massachusetts called Salem Willows. It's an old classic trolley park built in the 1800s. And most of the attractions are gone now. But in the winter, it's pretty much deserted. The parking lot's still there. And it is still on the water. So it's an interesting place to go where there's no people. But you can see migrating birds and such. So on this day... I went out there and I had, if I remember correctly, I had just purchased Midnight Oil's 10987654321 album, and I was listening to that on a boombox as I was watching Buffleheads land in the little cove there. Buffleheads are a strange duck-like bird with a big feathery head with a big white stripe on it. Anyway, I was having fun. It was a, it was a good time. And uh, then finally it was getting cold and I had to go home. And I went over to the car and I didn't find my keys immediately. And then, oh, there's my keys. They're in the ignition. And the doors are locked. And I'm out in this rather deserted part of Salem. In the winter, it's getting dark and cold. Cell phones uh, were not a thing. <laughs> so I did not have one. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Well, I did remember that there was a payphone right at the edge of the parking lot. But all my change was in the car. So that didn't help. So what to do? Well, I figured that there was a very good chance that at some point over the summer, somebody had dropped a quarter while trying to put it in the phone booth and it would have fallen in the tall grass which was now under the snow and there was a decent chance that i might find a quarter there so i went over and found a stick 
and started digging under the payphone. And sure enough, I found that quarter. And I picked up the quarter, stuck it in the phone, and called my parents who came and rescued me with only a little bit of grumbling. But uh, it was an example of kind of thinking your way through a problem. And, and yeah, I just did the math and figured that I had a good chance of finding a quarter, and I did. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that classifies as thinking out of the box or lateral thinking or whatever. But if you find yourself in a situation like that, go ahead and let all those weird ideas happen. They might be what gets you out of the situation. Product review. Let's talk about Goof Off. Goof Off is this it's citrus-based, oily stuff that you use to take off adhesive residue and stuff like that. And as I mentioned, I am in the process of removing lots and lots and lots of adhesive from the outside of my ambulance. And I am using Goof Off. And I have to tell you, it's only good sometimes. So do I recommend you have some Goof Off? Yeah, sure, it can help with some things. It's good for removing some bugs, and it helps for some kinds of stickers. But on the ambulance, I have several different kinds of stickers. There are the word stickers that are like on the front that say ambulance backwards. Those have one kind of adhesive. And then on the side, there are these big star of life emblems. Those have another kind of adhesive. And then there was this adhesive that they used to put the words on the sides. And that was a third kind of adhesive. And what I found is that the goof off works great on the big words, but hardly at all on anything else. I mean, really, it's, it doesn't do anything. Uh, WD-40 also doesn't do anything. In fact, I haven't found anything that will do anything, except the plastic razor blades. So goof off is, is a decent product for some things, but it is not the end all be all in adhesive removers. For the pros, I would say it's easy to clean up. It doesn't leave that much of a mess. It smells nice, which, you know, that's great. And sometimes when you buy it, it comes with a plastic scraper to help things along. And if you do use this stuff, know that you're supposed to let it sit. You're supposed to let it have time to dissolve the adhesive, which is difficult if your adhesives are on a vertical surface, which is my case. So my review of Goof Off ultimately is it can be useful, but it is not the end-all be-all of adhesive removers. And you're going to need to find exactly the right product for exactly the adhesives you have. Still, having a small bottle in a cabinet isn't a bad idea because there will be things that it will remove very effectively and quickly. A place to visit. As it happens, the folks who purchased my stretcher lived in Canton, South Dakota, so I just took a trip out there. And I also visited Aurora, South Dakota and Aurora, Iowa. You'll hear about them later. But Canton, South Dakota was, you know, it's just a town that happens to be in the extreme southeastern corner of South Dakota. And I didn't know all that much about it. But whenever I go someplace, I tend to do a little bit of research to see if there'd be something interesting to see there. And I found several interesting and odd things about Canton. And I am not exactly sure if you want to visit this place, but if you happen to be in southeastern South Dakota, Canton's not bad. First off, it is a sort of vibrant little small town. They have a Dairy Queen. They have restaurants. A lot of the shops are open downtown. As far as these little towns go, especially towns that aren't right on the interstate, this one is doing pretty well. 
but they've got some odd things there. One thing they've got is the remnants of a ski jump. Apparently, it was going to be a site for Olympic ski jump trials, and they built this massive ski jump that failed dramatically and then finally collapsed. And all you can see now is the place where they cleared for it. But, you know, this is not mountain country here. It's a kind of a strange place to find a ski jump. There's also the remnants, not very much left, of a major water park, like a theme park they used to have there many, many years ago. And there is a legend about gold being found in one of the parks. They have a buried treasure. (laughs) I kid you not. The story is that in 1859, a large caravan of 75 California miners loaded up with gold and silver bullion were forced into the Newton Hills by a band of hostile renegade Indians who were, you know, chasing them. So they buried the gold and silver and supposedly all the miners were killed in the battle. And so nobody knows where the gold and silver were buried. And of course you have to wonder if they were all killed. How does anyone know there was any gold buried? But let's not, let's not, let's not bandy about details here. The gold is still buried in Canton in a park and it's in this huge 1300 acre park, supposedly, And it's just there if you can find it. Um, (laughs) uh, 1,300 acres would take an awfully long time to dig through, and uh, apparently no one has found any of the gold yet. Or maybe they did, and they didn't tell anyone. So anyway, there's gold buried in Canton, South Dakota. But the strangest and most poignant thing is, is a place that I actually did visit. There is a golf course on the edge of town. It's called Hiawatha Golf Club. It's a nine-hole golf course. This is not a major concern. But in the middle of the golf course, there's a cemetery. And there are 127 graves in the cemetery, though I could only find one headstone. And there is a monument. And on the monument, it says, Asylum for Insane Indians. And from what I can tell, in 1898, this asylum was built, and it was there until 1934, and it was the only one in the United States, the only institution for insane Indians in the United States. And uh, it was also called the Hiawatha Insane Asylum, a name that carries over to the golf club. And according to records, basically, they just rounded up Indians and put them in this asylum. They weren't necessarily insane. Some of them may have had alcohol problems or were anti-government or just kind of making themselves noticeable. But into the asylum they went. Basically, with a life sentence, they were never allowed to leave. In 1927, an investigation showed that there just wasn't much sign of mental illness in these people. So 350 people were locked up in this asylum that looks just like, you know, a a horror movie asylum that you've seen a dozen times. And 121 of them died and are buried in the cemetery. All the buildings are gone now. All that's left is a cemetery. But the plaque lists all their names, and it is riddled with typos and errors. And I know this because they're obvious. You can see that there's a man here with a name, and then his wife was also listed, and they spelled the names wrong and things like that. And a lot of the names were things like screams at night and things that just these probably weren't actually people's names. It's quite the thing to be standing in the middle of a golf course and read about this 
thing that used to exist. And I don't know, it, it's just a good reminder that things were not always great, <laughs> especially for certain segments of our population. Now, if you would like to visit this, it is not that hard to get to, but you do need to ask permission from the golf club because it's on private property. Now, you're not really asking permission. You're just letting them know that you're going out there because you do have to walk across active fairways. So you have to be careful that you don't get hit by golf balls, basically. The way I did it was I waited until a golf cart was parked on the fairway. They took their shot, and then I walked behind the golf cart. That way I knew I had a good 30 seconds before they take another shot. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can read more about this, the insane Indian asylum. Uh, I think this also should be something that's taught in schools, perhaps, but uh, maybe with today's current environment, I'm uh, whistling against the wind a bit. Resource recommendation. If you are building out a van, I almost guarantee you are going to break those little plastic clips that hold panels in. For some reason, they just... They're not durable, especially if you have an older van. They're basically designed to be used once, and they're designed with the ease of use of the auto manufacturer in mind, not you. They're not meant to be removed and put on and taken off and put on and taken off all the time. So don't feel bad when you break them. It's bound to happen. But where do you get replacements? Well, I can tell you one place not to get replacements is from the manufacturer. Unless it's some weird specialty clip, don't get them from the manufacturer. You can find some clips at AutoZone and O'Reilly and places like that. But what I have found is that they often don't really fit right. They, they, they have limited sizes. So here's what I did to overcome this problem. I went on eBay and just bought a huge bag of assorted automotive clips. And that has worked out really well. In fact, I have used these in ways that I hadn't even considered just because I have them. So you can get a bag of 30 different kinds of clips, 500 pieces, 30 different kinds of clips for 13 bucks. And they're all kinds. I mean, there's, there's big ones, there's little ones, there's push pin kinds, there's the kind that you slide into a little slot on a piece of molding and then snap in. It's just a really good thing to have. And I, my NV200 has a ton of these things in because I think I broke probably most of the ones I took off. So this is a good thing to have in your arsenal, and I will have a link in the show notes to the eBay search I did, uh, and you can probably find them other places too, but it's definitely a good place to get these clips. And also, uh, get a clip puller too. There's a metal tool that looks like a little forked crowbar thing. Pick one of those up too. They're not very expensive, and they will lower your chances of breaking these clips but you're still gonna break them, especially if you're working on your van in winter. Well, thank you for listening to episode 84. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. I would like to plug this week our Facebook group. Our group is friendly, non-judgmental. There are no stupid questions. So you can come in here and ask those questions you're afraid to ask in the other groups. I moderate it very carefully. I will not tolerate anybody dissing anybody else. And until next week, remember the words of that rather controversial figure, Thomas Edison. I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that won't work. <laughs>